All right, we are continuing our study of the Gospel of Matthew here on the Listener's Commentary. And in this recording, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 37. Let's just recall where we're at in the context of the overall Gospel of Matthew. Flowing out of the last major teaching block in chapter 10, Matthew is now showcasing stories about various responses to Jesus, particular stories that highlight the growing opposition to him from the Jewish leadership. And so in the last section, Matthew showed conflict with the Pharisees over the Sabbath and how to properly keep it. In fact, Jesus in those stories even claims to be the Lord of the Sabbath. And by the end of those stories, the Pharisees are looking for a way to eliminate Jesus, to get rid of him. Well, the stories continue here then in this section uh, with the crowds wondering if Jesus is the son of David and some Pharisees accusing Jesus of actually being in league with the devil. The episode begins with Jesus performing a miracle. Here's what happens. Look at verse 22. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and unable to speak was brought to Jesus, and he, that is Jesus, healed him so that the man who was unable to speak talked and could see. And so Jesus heals this demon-possessed man. This man is brought to him. Uh, the effect, at least, of the demon possession includes blindness and inability to speak. Jesus casts out the demon, heals the man, so that now he's talking and he's speaking. And the crowds respond to this in verse 23 like this. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? They're wondering, who is this that, that has this kind of power that can do these kinds of miracles? And we've already seen the phrase, son of David, several times before in Matthew's gospel. It is one very specifically Jewish way of speaking about the Messiah. So that's what they're wondering. Is he the son of David? Is he the great king promised long ago that was going to come back and restore the dynasty of David and sit on the throne? Is that who this man is? They're wondering if Jesus is the king, the Messiah. Now, the Pharisees, in contrast, try to silence the crowd's enthusiasm for Jesus, and they do so with a, the following accusation. Look at verse 24. When the Pharisees heard this, when they heard, in other words, the crowds wondering if Jesus was the Messiah, here's how they respond. They said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Now, remember who the Pharisees are, that the Pharisees are popular religious leaders and popular scripture teachers of the day. In fact, more often than not, they're looked up to by the general populace throughout Galilee. They're the ones that often teach and run the synagogues. And so their opinion counts. And what they're essentially doing here by uh, telling the crowds, this man casts out demons by Beelzebul, is they're essentially running a smear campaign against Jesus. They're saying, in essence, that he may be doing miracles and he may be casting out demons, but he's not doing it by God's power. He's doing it by Beelzebul. Well, who's Beelzebul? You can see here in verse 24 that it says, by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And a Jewish writing of the time called the Testament of Solomon actually identifies Beelzebul the same way, the ruler of the demons. So it seems that Beelzebul was just another name for the devil or Satan at this time among the Jews. And that's exactly how Jesus understands it in his reply to this accusation. And so what this accusation amounts to then is that 
Uh, Jesus was practicing some form of sorcery, and that would have been a very serious charge. So they're intending to destroy Jesus' credibility with the crowds uh, to kind of silence the crowd's kind of amazement and astonishment and maybe thinking he might be the Messiah. They're trying to silence all of that by a very serious charge against Jesus, the charge of sorcery. Well, verse 25 tells us how Jesus responds. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or no house divided against itself will stand. Now, it's important for us to pay attention to all those words, kingdom, city, house. In fact, that word house probably indicates that when Jesus says kingdom, he has a dynasty in mind. And that's what he's thinking of. Like a house is the house of David, or, you know, we have inscriptions from the Old Testament for like the house of Amri or the house of Jehu, right? Like these are royal dynasties. And so kingdom and house probably are somewhat synonymous. And that really becomes the focus of how Jesus uh, draws the implication of this out here. And so what Jesus is essentially saying in verse 25 is, when you have members of the royal family vying for the throne and maybe killing each other off in their quest to, to you know, grab power, it usually doesn't go well for that kingdom or that royal family. And the same is true with the kingdom of Satan. And so Jesus says in verse 26, and if Satan is casting out Satan, notice he uses Satan here, which means that's how he understands Beelzebul. They're referring to Satan, the prince of demons, the devil, Satan himself. If Satan is casting out Satan, he's become divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Just like a royal dynasty that is fighting with each other and vying for the throne and killing off others, how in the world is Satan's kingdom going to stand if it's by Satan's power that Jesus actually getting rid of Satan's activity and the members of his quote-unquote kingdom, demons themselves. And so Jesus says in verse 27, If by Beelzebul I cast out the demons, by whom then do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. Now we have to track what Jesus is saying. In verse 26 and 27, he's basically giving two reasons that their accusations don't make any sense. One is, it wouldn't make sense for Satan to cast out Satan. That would actually be destroying his power and his kingdom. The second one, verse 27, is that there were Jews, uh, disciples of the Pharisees, who also practiced exorcism. Were they doing it by Satan's power or are they doing it by God's power? Their activity will be the one that judges them and the falsehood of their accusations. And the, what Jesus is appealing to here is the fact that exorcism, casting out of demons, was a known part of Jewish practice. And so in that sense, Jesus wasn't alone in casting out demons. Nevertheless, the reaction of the crowds here and in other places where Jesus uh, casts out demons, their reaction indicates that the nature of Jesus' exorcisms were somehow unique. They made the people wonder if he was the Messiah. So what stands out about Jesus's? Well, it seems that what stands out is both the ease with which he cast out demons and the frequency with which Jesus cast out demons. Like Jesus didn't have to go through a big incantation. He didn't have to use some amulet. He didn't have to cast some spell or pronounce some curse. Jesus just simply spoke a word, a word of authority, and the demons listened and they fled. And that was unusual. 
And the common understanding of the time, and in some ways we still see this practice in parts of the world today, is that there are spiritual beings and spiritual powers at work in the world, and they can only be appropriately dealt with by a greater power. So Jewish exorcisms were thus understood to be done by a greater power, that is the power of God. It had to be done by the power of God because he was the only one who had authority and power over the spiritual beings. And so that thought world, that belief system, it's to that that Jesus is appealing in verse 27. If it's only a greater power that can control or cast out demons, and if Yahweh, God himself, is the one who actually has power over demons, as your disciples believe and you Jews believe, right, that's what Jesus is saying, then how in the world can you even suggest that I'm casting out demons by Satan himself. That's the argument that Jesus is making here in verse 27. So in verse 28, then, Jesus draws out the conclusion for them. He says in verse 28, But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And we know from our reading of the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus was anointed with the Spirit at his baptism and empowered for ministry. And in the Isaiah quote, immediately before this story, we're reminded that it's the Spirit that's going to empower the Messianic servant's ministry. And so, in the flow of Matthew's gospel, we know this is what's really going on, that Jesus has been empowered by the Spirit of God to perform miracles and to cast out demons. And the implication, Jesus says, of that is that God's kingdom, his reign and his rule has broken into the world, has entered into their midst. And then Jesus describes that breaking in of God's kingdom as actually binding the strong man. Look what he says in verse 29. He says, or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first ties up the strong man? Unless he first binds the hands and ties up the strong man, then he will plunder his house. That is, in contrast to their accusation about Jesus, here's what's really going on. That's what Jesus is getting at here in verse 28 and 29. Here's what's really going on. Jesus is freeing people from the power of Satan. Satan's kingdom is actually under siege, if you will, by Jesus himself. Satan may be like a strong man, but Jesus is stronger. And he is tying up Satan, the strong man, and plundering his house. That's what his exorcisms are effectively doing. They're doing so by the power of the Spirit of God, and bringing in the kingdom of God, and liberating people from Satan's strong power. And since that's what's really going on, Jesus continues in verse 30 to explain what their accusation actually means. Like, they're accusing Jesus of working his miracles and casting out demons by the power of Satan himself. What does that actually mean? Well, here's what it means. Look at verse 30. The one who is not with me is against me, and the one who does not gather with me scatters. In other words, to say that Jesus advances Satan's kingdom rather than God's kingdom obviously means you're opposed to him. You're against him. And according to the second line, the bit about gathering and scattering, what that means is they're scattering people. You're not gathering people to the Messiah. You're scattering them. Whereas Jesus is the true shepherd gathering the lost sheep of Israel, as we've already seen throughout the gospel. Those running this smear campaign 
are trying to chase them away and scatter them and leave them without a shepherd. That's what Jesus is saying in verse 30. And Jesus continues his response to their accusation by giving a counter accusation. His counter accusation is this. They're blaspheming the work of the Spirit. Look what he says in verse 31. Therefore, notice he's drawing a conclusion from all of this. Therefore, I say to you, since this is what you're doing, you're scattering God's people. You're accusing me of doing God's work by Satan's power. Therefore, I say to you, every sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, that is against Jesus, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or the age to come. Now, this idea of blaspheming the Holy Spirit has garnered an awful lot of attention and a lot of debate. And even though that's the case, the context here actually makes it uh, pretty clear what Jesus is talking about. In fact, in Mark's version of this story, Mark actually clarifies what it refers to in context. Mark uh, explains that it's because they were accusing Jesus of having an unclean spirit. Mark makes that explicit. That's what their accusation entailed. He's using unclean spirit to cast out other unclean spirits. And Mark says that's what this is all about. So attributing Jesus' work to the power of Satan and to the evil spirits, that's what blaspheming the Spirit in this context originally meant. Since it's the Holy Spirit who empowers Jesus' ministry, and since it's the Holy Spirit who empowers his, his exorcism, to say that Jesus does this stuff by the, uh, the, the devil is to speak against, that is, to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And so that's what we're talking about when he says this. To make this accusation is to speak against the Spirit of God. Not only that, I think it's helpful for us to put ourselves into the sandals of Jesus' first hearers, his original audience. And his original audience were Jews. And the law, the Old Testament law, the Torah, actually had some things to say about blaspheming God. For example, Numbers chapter 15, verse 30 and 31 says this, Anyone who sins defiantly, whether native-born or foreigner, blasphemes the Lord and must be, notice this, cut off from his people. He is removed from the assembly of his people. Why? Because they have despised the Lord's word and broken his commands. They must surely be cut off. Their guilt remains on them. That sounds very similar to what Jesus is saying. They're not going to be forgiven. They remain guilty. Or Leviticus 24, verses 15 and 16, it says this. Now, speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. He's going to have to carry it. Uh, it's not going to be forgiven for him. He's going to have to bear that sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. He's going to have to bear the consequences of his sin. All the congregation shall stone him, the sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, that is the name of the Lord, he shall be put to death. So the Jews of Jesus' day, based on the teaching of the Torah, they understood the serious nature of the idea of blaspheming God. They understood the severity of the penalty for that action. In fact, the passage from Numbers that we read above, Numbers 15, it's actually in contrast with unintentional sins. In Numbers 15, you have unintentional sins. And for those, there is atonement that can be made. But for defiant, rebellious sins, 
uh, there is no atonement. That's the contrast. And that's really what Jesus seems to be saying here. It's almost as if Jesus is putting, speaking against him in the first category. Like you can sin against the Son of Man, you can speak against the Son of Man, and and that maybe will fit in that unintentional category in Numbers 15, and there's forgiveness for that. But blaspheming the work of the Spirit, which is obvious and evident and clearly not, uh, you know, not of the devil, it's obvious, you should know that. Well, for that, that's so rebellious and defiant, there is no atonement. So what Jesus is saying is uh, to take what is clearly the work of God by his spirit through Jesus, seen in the miracles, seen in casting out demons, and in defiance of God, attribute that to the devil. Well, that's the kind of thing for which there is no atonement. That helps us, I think, have a picture of what Jesus is getting at and the way he talks about it here with regard to blaspheming the work of the spirit in his ministry. One last little thing that I hopefully is encouraging to you. It's been encouraging to a lot of people over years, and that's this. The old adage is, if you're worried that you've committed this sin, the blasphemy of the Spirit, you probably haven't. I think that's still like wise advice for us to remember. This is about rebellious defiance in the work of the Spirit through Jesus's ministry. Now, in view of their accusation, Jesus goes on to offer some further reflections on words and the importance and the power of words. Look what he says in verse 33. He says, Either assume the tree to be good, as well as its fruit good, or assume the tree to be bad, as well as its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. Now, I'm reading from the most recent update in the New American Standard, and for some reason, this translation that they've offered in this update is really kind of odd. I don't know where they even got the word assume. Because they've used the word assume in this translation, they've had to supply the verb to be, which isn't there either. Uh, The the, uh, Greek literally just reads make. That's the word they've translated assume. It's just the word for do or make, the basic word for that. It's not a confusing word at all. It doesn't really mean assume. It just means do or make, right? So literally it reads, make the tree good and the fruit is good. Make the tree bad. And the fruit is bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. So there's nothing about assuming here. It's about either you have a tree that is a good tree, and guess what happens? A good tree is going to produce good fruit. Bad tree is going to produce bad fruit. You'll know what kind of tree it is by looking at its fruit. Jesus actually used the same imagery in another context in chapter 7, verse 16 and following in the Sermon on the Mount. And the point there is the same as the point here. A tree's fruit demonstrates a tree's character. In other words, a person's behavior, their overall manner of life, demonstrates a person's character. So Jesus is going to go on and apply this uh, imagery, this analogy, to the things that people say. The things people say actually reveals what kind of person they are. It reveals their inner character. So he says in verse 34, you offspring of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak or express any good things. For the mouth speaks from that which fills the heart. Again, the New American Standard says, you being evil, express any good things. But it's the word for speak there. How can you speak good things? Because the mouth speaks from that which fills the heart. In other words, your words are an overflow of your character. 
My words are the overflow of my character. And the Pharisees, in the immediate context here, they're saying things about Jesus that amount to blasting the Spirit. And that reveals something about their character. The reason uh, they say such evil things is because they themselves have some evil character. They're not good trees. Why? Because words come from the heart. And we have to remember that the heart in biblical speak, biblical thinking, is not the seat of the emotions. In English, we often use the heart for the seat of the emotions. But in the Bible, both in Hebrew and in Greek, the heart is the seat more of like the will. It's more like the control center of the person. What's in the heart is a person's values and a person's character that controls what a person says and what a person does. So the heart is this the, the control center of who you are, and that's why your words flow out of it. And so Jesus goes on to compare what's in the heart to stored up treasure. The good person brings out of the good treasure good things. The evil person brings out of his evil treasure evil things. In other words, the character stored up in your heart, well, that's what you're going to draw on. That's what you're going to speak out of. That's what you're going to act out of. In other words, who a person is, that is their character, shows up in what they do and say. Our actions and our words reveal our character. So then Jesus emphasizes the seriousness of this. He says in verse 36, But I tell you that for every careless word that people speak, they will give an account of it on the day of judgment. That's a bit scary, isn't it? Like Every careless word, give an account on the day of judgment? That's a bit scary. Now, why is this? Because as Jesus just finished explaining, words reveal a person's character. And it's our character that counts. And so because our words reveal what kind of person we are, we're going to have to give an account for our words, for what we say, because of who we are. And Jesus intends for his disciples to embody his very kind of character. Disciples become like their teacher, their rabbi. We don't start out that way, and we maybe will never be quite perfect at it, but increasingly and in reality, disciples become like their their teacher. That is, disciples of Jesus become like Jesus in their character. And that means the things that disciples of Jesus talk about and the things they say, well, that's going to change because their character is changing, because their heart is changing, because they're storing up good things within their heart. They're becoming a good tree that routinely and naturally produces good fruit to tie all the imagery together. And so one way to know a person's character is by what that person says. And that means to say something as careless as the Pharisees did here says something about uh, them and their character that they're going to have to give an account for on the day of judgment. And then As Jesus concludes, he makes this very personal for each one of us, not just for the Pharisees, not just for the people listening in his day, but for each one of us. He says this in verse 37, for by your words, you will be justified and by your words, you will be condemned. The words justified and condemned are like opposites. Justified means not condemned. 
getting a favorable verdict before the court. Like on the day of judgment, uh, you will your words will either justify you or your words will condemn you. Why? Again, because your words, our words, reveal our character. And thus, they're going to make it plain whether or not we were a genuine disciple of Jesus or not. And that's why we will be justified, or that's why we will be condemned. And so this whole section, as it kind of narrows down towards the end, reminds us of the power and the importance of our words, because they actually are evidence of what's stored up in our heart, what kind of person we genuinely are, what kind of character we've developed. And being a disciple of Jesus necessitates that we're learning, we're being transformed by the Spirit through His grace and His wisdom. We're being transformed from the inside out to have the character of Christ in our heart. All right, thanks for tuning in to this session on the Listener's Commentary on the New Testament. The Listener's Commentary is a listener-supported, crowdfunded Bible teaching ministry that's only made possible by the generous support of people like you. So thanks a ton to those of you who support this ministry. And if you have been blessed or impacted in some way by the Listener's Commentary, would you prayerfully consider joining the team of supporters? You can do so by swinging over to listenerscommentary.com and you can click either the Sign Up for the Study Hub and you can sign up that way and, and support the ministry through signing up for the Study Hub. Or you can click the Give button and, and go to the Give page where you can set up a one-time or recurring monthly donation through World Family Mission, kind of an umbrella organization uh, that is a registered nonprofit. And you can give through them to my ministry as well. Thanks a ton for your support.